My youngest daughter, Ainsley, is an animal lover. And uh, when she was three, four years of age, there was a tailless cat that was kind of wandering around our neighborhood. And one Sunday morning, it was actually the Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday, and our kids were going to be doing a little kind of a skit that day. And one boy named Mackenzie was going to be playing the part of Jesus. So on Sunday morning, as we're coming in the front doors of the church, my wife and I noticed Mackenzie going through the door. And unbeknownst to us, there was the tailless cat just off to the side of the door. So my wife yelled out, oh, there's Jesus. And then later that day, my three-year-old teacher in junior church brought me aside. And she said, Pastor, we've got a bit of an issue with your daughter. I was talking about the fact that Jesus is in heaven. And she said, no, Jesus lives in my neighborhood. And she was convinced of it. But later on, we had some friends with us for lunch, and that cat ran out into the middle of the the road, and I, I just yelled out, Jesus almost got hit by a car. And then we thought, what would that do to the world? Instead of a cross, we'd have the front bumper of a Chevy or something like that up at the front. So everyone's take on Easter is different. A lot depends on whether you're a believer, or maybe you're not a believer, or maybe you put yourself in a third category, and you're just not sure. And one thing you can be sure of is this, that regardless of your upbringing or your religious denomination, there is a simple fact that a carpenter by the name of Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a cross almost 2,000 years ago. That is historical fact and there's nothing that we can do to dispute that now we the cult called the jehovah witnesses they don't believe that jesus is the divine son of god they don't believe that jesus rose from the dead but they have now started capitalizing on easter weekend and they're inviting people to attend the anniversary of jesus death Now, I got a phone call inviting me to go to this service. I don't get upset very often, but I gave this, he was a nice man too. (laughs) Probably wasn't expecting it, but I said, just stay away from my neighborhood. Don't call anybody here. I have all kinds of people that are in my church that are in this neighborhood. There's my rant for the day. But Jesus, his death left an indelible impression on the world, especially his disciples who spent every day with him for a three-year period. And then what he went through, the, the, the beating alone, 23% of the people didn't survive what is called the scourging. And then everybody died at some point in that process of going to the cross and dying on that cross. So they knew that Jesus was dead. So knowing what Jesus had claimed, knowing his miracles, and knowing all that he'd done, the religious leaders were concerned when Jesus' body was placed in that tomb. So they made certain that they put guards at that tomb because they didn't want the disciples of Jesus coming, stealing the body, and then saying, oh, he's back to life again. They wanted to protect against that with everything they had. A woman asked the pastor, Vernon McGee, this question, and she actually wrote it to him. She said, Mr. McGee, 
Our preacher said that on Easter Sunday, Jesus just went into a coma on the cross. He didn't really die, and the disciples nursed him back to life. But what do you think about that? And then here was his response. Dear sister, beat your preacher with a heavy whip 39 times, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, then run a spear through his heart, embalm him and place him in an airless tomb for three days, and then tell me what happens. See, in that video clip that we just watched, Billy Graham touched on a number of the incredible things that took place in that event. So let's look what's happening here in John chapter 20. When it was evening on the first day of the week, Jesus' followers were together, the doors were locked, and because they were afraid of the elders, then Jesus came and stood right in the middle of them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. His followers were thrilled when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus said again, Peace be with you. And as the Father sent me, I now send you. Thomas called Didymus, who was one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other followers kept telling Thomas, We saw the Lord. But Thomas said, I will not believe it until I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side. So I'm going to make two observations here today. One is of that day, that first Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. And the other one is the following Sunday. And we need to begin by realizing that Thomas wasn't present with the other believers on that first Sunday. And his absence plays a big part in this entire scenario. And we wonder, why wasn't he with the group? We might speculate that he was despondent. After all, one of his best friends had died just a couple of days before this. Maybe he had gone out for a long walk just to try and clear his head. Or, or maybe he was so overwhelmed with the disappointment that he just didn't want to be around these people at all. Or maybe he has no expectations of anything significant happening. So he's out looking for some new things to do, some things to get involved with. Whatever the reason, he missed out on this life-changing event. Now sometimes we do the same thing. We may miss out on that which is crucial because of that which is trivial. When we miss a Sunday here at Halifax Christian Church because of work or maybe sickness or we're out of town. I love it when I hear people asking others, you know, what did I miss? What took place on Sunday? And I think that's how it must be here for Thomas. He's saying, okay, guys, wait a second here. What did I miss? You're going to have to help me understand this. But let's also ask, why aren't we with the believers? In Hebrews 10, 25, the writer wrote, You should not stay away from the church meetings as some are doing, but you should meet together and encourage each other. Do this even more as you see the day approaching. It's been incredible what our media team has done for us during the 25 months since COVID first began. And those of you who are watching today, that's your beneficiaries of that, or benefactors of that. And, but as amazing as that is, and we can watch online when we can't make it to the building or during those four stretches of time when we weren't even allowed to be in the building. 
But there comes a time when we need to be in person with other believers. And that verse encourages us to not give up meeting together. So we're thrilled that you're here today. And there are a variety of reasons that keep people from church. And maybe they've had a really bad experience at another church years ago. Or others will say, well, you know, as long as you believe that's really all that matters, what's the big deal about Christians getting together for worship or for fellowship? And others might not come because they're skeptical. But I'm not concerned about the past. I'm concerned about the fact that you are here this morning or that you are watching this morning. And this verse encourages us not to give up meeting together. Now, we are in a worldwide struggle to avoid being infected with the COVID-19 virus. Although I'm actually running into people that are treating it like we did with, with chickenpox and our children. We would find out that one of our daughter's friends had chickenpox, so we'd send all three of our daughters over to play with them, catch it, get it over with. But I actually had a wife telling me her husband got sick, and she was saying, now breathe on me, kiss me. And he didn't feel like kissing her in the way he was feeling, but she was wanting to get sick, get it over with. But there is another virus on the loose out there, and it's not receiving nearly as much attention as the COVID virus, but it's a spiritual virus, and it has a name attached to it, and that name is doubt. And I think at all times, we struggle with it. Thomas doubted, and why did he doubt? For one thing, his buddies have told him something that was unbelievable. He could have faked it, and he said, okay, guys, Jesus is alive, whatever you guys say, but we call him Doubting Thomas. But in reality, all he was doing was requesting some proof, the same proof that the other disciples claimed had been revealed to them, nothing more, nothing less. He just said, let me see the nail marks in his hands. Let me see that spear mark in his side. He was just asking for that. Now, I wonder why we doubt. The thing that Thomas was honest about was in his doubts. He didn't pretend to believe something that he didn't. And oftentimes, we do that. We came, actually claim to believe in Christianity just because we don't want to rock the boat in our family. But later on, when our faith is challenged by an unbelieving professor, or maybe we experience unjust suffering or disappointment, or it might even be a, a church leader that lets you down in a big way. Or it might be that you're suppressing your doubts. And when you do that, at some point, a spiritual foundation will crumble. So in Second Peter 3, we read, The Lord is not slow in doing what he promised, the way some people understand slowness. But God is being patient with you. He does not want anyone to be lost, but he wants all people to change their hearts and lives. So if you are completely honest, we know that this doubting description fits us. And we're especially vulnerable to this doubt virus if we don't know what it is that we believe, let alone why we believe. And the key is whether the doubt leads to belief or whether it leads to unbelief. Now, most Christians think that doubt is the opposite of faith, but that's not true, and, and this is an important distinction. The opposite of faith is unbelief. 
So maybe you had a strong belief at one time, but it's soured due to some trials or some tragedies. And some feel also like you can't believe the Bible and be an intellectual at the same time, but they've never had the integrity to actually study through God's word. So let's not forget who's responsible for spreading this virus. The Bible tells us that Satan is the father of lies, and he seeks to steal and destroy. And if his attacks are successful, those darts of doubt can lead one down the path of unbelief and rejection. Thomas wanted to believe. He was missing in action when Jesus appeared on that first Sunday, but Thomas didn't know then what we know now. And isn't it amazing how the Easter story touches and transforms our lives even 2,000 years later? Just a few days before Good Friday in April of 2012, I stood with my family around a grave in Fredericton, Prince Edward Island, as I was leading the committal service, saying goodbye to my father. A man who was a tremendous Christian, a faithful Christian man, my mother's watching, she'll get mad at me for this, but this was his schedule. Every day he would get up, milk the cows, come in and eat breakfast, and then I would see him with a Bible in his hand going to the bathroom to read it every day. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. <laughs> but I was standing there with my family, and I was reading from the 23rd Psalm. And it's at times like that when you're thankful that the last chapter of Jesus' life wasn't Good Friday, but that there was a continuation and that there is a hope of the resurrection through Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we don't have a prayer. But maybe you're like Thomas on that first Sunday. You're here today. You find yourself surrounded by believers who are convinced of Christ's resurrection, but you're not quite there yet. You have more questions than answers. But I want to say that I'm so glad that you are here and that you haven't taken the easy route out and chosen to separate yourself and not be here or not be watching on Facebook or YouTube. But just like Thomas, you've come back to find the answer to life's most important question. Did Jesus indeed rise from the dead? And if you stick around like Thomas did, you'll see what he experienced on that very first Sunday. Back when the Passion of the Christ was being shown in movie theaters, we had a lot of people watch that. And I had a lot of phone calls in regards to that movie. People were going to it thinking this is some easy watching Christmas or Christian music or Christian video, sorry. But they got there and they were watching it, and they were just thrown completely by watching the scenes of Jesus' crucifixion. It shook them to the core, and they were so moved that they couldn't even drive home without talking to someone. So I was getting all these phone calls from Scotiabank Theater parking lot, and then there was even one young woman who started driving home, and she was at an intersection on Dutch Village Road, and just couldn't take it any longer, pulled into a parking lot and called me and she had to talk about what she had seen. See, when you come face to face with what happened on the cross, it has a way of getting your attention. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men onto me. 
Kunle Thakayesi spoke at our Good Friday service, and he pointed out that the cross appeared to be a thing of weakness, that God was losing, Jesus was being placed on that cross, but it actually ended up being the ultimate display of strength and a way for Jesus to draw people back to him. So the resurrection account that we're celebrating today contains some events that are contrary to anything that anybody has experienced. Uh, God becoming a human being, being born of a virgin, healing blind people, walking on water, feeding 5,000 men plus the women and children that were there with just a little sack lunch, dying a death as a substitute for us, and then rising bodily from the grave and ascending into heaven. If you have never doubted the reality of these events, then maybe it's because you've never thought. Because we're either crazy to believe them, or they constitute the most incredible truths that have ever impacted this world. And Jude wrote, Show mercy to some people who have doubts. Do you know why? Because as many people in this room can testify, if you're patient with honest doubters, they often turn into strong believers. And that's why Jesus was so full of grace to Thomas. Because when Thomas was told by his friends that Jesus appeared to them, he didn't say, no way. Excuse me, this is what he said. He did say, no way. It couldn't have happened. People don't come back from the dead. But within a week, Thomas is a dedicated believer. So today I want you to see three positive things that Thomas actually did that enabled him to become a faithful disciple. First of all, he sincerely wanted to believe. He was absolutely devastated by the death of Christ. He loved him. And when his friends said, Jesus is alive, he could have said, Your imagination has gone wild with grief. I'm out of here and left altogether. But he didn't. He hung around for a week, even though he wasn't fitting in here at all. He felt like he was an outsider, but he desperately wanted to believe. And what do you think he was doing during that next week? I'm sure he was asking questions. He would talk to the women that went to the tomb. You said that the tomb was empty and that there were angels inside. What did they look like? Or, Or maybe he would have spoken to Mary Magdalene. You said that you saw Jesus and at first you thought he was a gardener. What was it that made you think he was a gardener? And then he would have said, now you two guys that say you saw Jesus on the road to Emmaus, what, what was it that prevented you from recognizing him at first? And then what was it that made you realize it was him when you arrived at Emmaus? He wanted to believe, and he questioned for a week. Now let me ask you a question. Two people with the same IQ, the very same evidence, one believes and one doesn't. Like, why is that? There's a variety of factors, but one factor is desire. Desire influences objectivity. Some people would rather not believe because if they believe, then they have to give up their immoral lifestyle. They have to make some big changes. Others just don't want to believe because they are filled with pride and they would have to swallow their intellectual pride if they believed. 
Or maybe they'd have to endure ridicule from their more liberal friends. So they just don't want to believe. But in Acts 19, Luke wrote, But some of them became stubborn. They refused to believe and said evil things about the way of Jesus before all the people. So some people stubbornly refuse to believe because they don't want to. But to be perfectly honest, most come to faith because deep down they want to believe. Now there are some notable exceptions, people that come kicking and screaming into the kingdom, like Saul of Tarsus for someone in the Bible, and an individual like C.S. Lewis. But for most people, they want to experience that hope of life after death. They want to believe that their sins are completely forgiven. They want to believe that their life has purpose. One man had a bunch of bumper stickers made up and they simply said, be there. And he passed these out to his children and to his grandchildren and it's kind of a slogan for them, a family goal that they would all be there together in heaven so that the family circle wouldn't be broken for eternity. To be there for that moment when God wipes every tear away from our eyes and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain or death to be there as family and have the promise of serving Christ forever and all the activity and the joys of heaven. And don't you want that goal for your family? Don't you want that deep down in your life to be with him forever and ever? The book of 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen reads, If our hope in Christ is for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else in the world. But Christ has truly been risen from the dead, the first one and proof that those who sleep in death will also be raised. Death has come because of what man, one man did, but the rising from death also comes because of one man. So don't you believe that? I'll tell you a, a second thing about Thomas, and that was the fact that he gave himself the opportunity to believe. He deliberately exposed himself to the evidence. So in verse 26, a week later, the followers were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. So Thomas went to the place where he was most likely to meet Jesus, and if Jesus was going to appear again, he's not going to miss this. And that night, a spectacular thing happened. The doors were locked, but Jesus came in and stood right in the middle of them. And he said, peace be with you. Now, don't you think that the hair on Thomas's arms was just standing up completely and that his heart was just thumping in his chest? And Jesus was so full of grace toward Thomas, he didn't say, Thomas, you loser, I'm so disappointed in you. All the evidence that your friends have given to you and you didn't believe, I'm so disappointed in you, you're disqualified. He didn't do that. He was patient with him. And he singled Thomas out in verse 27. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand here in my side. Stop being an unbeliever and believe. Now you know something? If you want to remove the darkness of doubt from your soul, then you have to go to where the light is shining. And Read literature that nurtures your faith. But I was meeting with someone from my, our church family this week and was so encouraged by hearing about the way that he reads to nurture his faith. 
So do that and spend Sundays in regular worship. Join a life group. Hang around with people of faith because it's contagious. And most important of all, read the evidence that is found in God's word. The Romans 10, 17 tells us, so faith comes from hearing the good news and people hear the good news when someone tells them about Christ. So you can't understand, you can't know unless you are in God's word. Lee Strobel, you've probably heard of, but he was a graduate of Yale Law School and became a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. And he considered himself an atheist. He considered Christianity to be a superstition, even though he had never given it any time, never studied it or investigated it at all. But then one day, his wife became a Christian. And he was so impressed with the transformation in his life that he decided, okay, I'm going to investigate this Christianity. And he took two years to just rip everything apart. And over the course of those two years, the evidence was so overwhelming that he gave his life to Christ. And then he wrote the book that some of you may have read. And it's an amazing apologetic book entitled The Case for Christ. So if you want to believe, then you have to go where the light is shining and examine the evidence. And the final thing that we see that's positive about Thomas is that he made an intentional decision to believe. So when he saw Jesus standing there in their midst, there was no hesitation. Thomas said to them, my Lord and my God. He didn't demand further proof. He, said, he didn't say, Jesus, I need to see you walk on the water again. Or he didn't say, Jesus, did you notice that man who was paralyzed out on the street and he was looking for money? Let's go out there. Let's see if you can enable him to walk again. He, he didn't do any of that. He just simply, humbly chose to believe. And tradition tells us that Thomas was actually sent east to evangelize. And in 52 AD, he ended up in India, carrying the faith to present-day Kerala state. And that still today boasts a large indigenous population, which calls itself the Christians of St. Thomas. And then tradition tells us that Thomas died a martyr's death and was speared to death in a place called Calamine in Madras, India. All of this because he chose to believe in Christ. But you know what? For the most part, faith is a matter of choice. You choose to believe or you choose to disbelieve. And look at what Jesus said in, in verse 29. Then Jesus told you, you believe because you see me. But then he speaks to us in the rest of this verse. Those who believe without seeing me will be truly blessed. Now, we don't have the physical proof that Thomas had. We don't have Jesus actually appearing here in this room before us. But we have so much other evidence that enables us to believe. There's the reliability of Scripture. There's the dating of our calendar. It all begins with the birth of Jesus, the permanence of the church, the, the transformation of millions of lives, the dramatic answer to prayer, the fulfillment of prophecy. The men in the life group that I lead are just blown away by that. We're doing some study right now on the messianic prophecies and looking at how these things were predicted a thousand years before Jesus was born. His death by crucifixion 
was predicted even before crucifixion was invented as a form of execution. And it just goes on and on with the evidence. So there's also the illogic of the alternative. If you don't believe the Easter account, do you believe that this complex world is just happened by accident? Do you believe that when we die, that just ends everything? Do you really believe that? For me, the most convincing evidence is the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Because when Jesus died, they scattered. They were saving their behinds. But after they saw the resurrected Christ, there was this tremendous transformation in each one of them. And they all ended up dying a martyr's death because of their conviction that they'd seen Jesus alive. So it's recorded in the Bible. It's recorded in secular history. People don't die for a cause they don't believe in. That's why Peter wrote these words that I want to read as our band comes back to the front. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So you have enough evidence, and you've got to choose to believe or disbelieve. Lee Iacocca said, a good leader actually functions this way. When they have 95% of the evidence, then it's time to move ahead. It's time to act. And we have at least 95% of the evidence. And that other 5% is a choice called faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So at what point do you say, I choose to believe? Jesus Christ triumphed over the grave and God sent this evidence to us and he's been sending it for 2,000 years. There's enough evidence to believe. At what point do you in your life make a choice to say, I believe it's true and I want to entrust my life to Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to relax in his grace. I want to experience the forgiveness of my sins. I want to have the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. You can choose to believe it, or you can choose to disbelieve it. But many people choose to just have doubt all the way through life, and they're like a skydiver who just can't make up his mind whether to pull that rip cord or not. Is it the right time or isn't it the right time? And it ends up being tragedy for them. And it will be tragedy for you if you don't pull that rip cord, if you don't make the decision to believe in Jesus Christ. In the book of Mark, it says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So there comes a time, folks, when you have to make a choice. You've got to act on the faith that you have. And then you will discover that that faith will just grow and grow and grow with the passing of time. Do you want to believe? Do you want to be there as that father making those bumper stickers? Have you examined the evidence that God has given? And are you ready to make that choice? You can come to the front. I'm going to be standing right here as we sing. You can share that decision. You can share it with me at the door. You can email me. You can talk to any of our other leaders. But make that decision today.